Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit. You can find more information about us at uschess.org, where you can become a member by clicking on the join button, and you can donate to our cause by clicking on the donate button. Thank you to USCF Sales for sponsoring this podcast. At the end of this recording, you can hear how you can win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's pod. I'd like to welcome Jamal Abdul-Aleem to the March edition of One Move at a Time. Jamal is a longtime contributor to Chess Life magazine and Chess Life Online. He has made it something of a specialty to write in our first moves department in Chess Life magazine. He has covered the World Open for seven of the last eight years. His articles have appeared in a variety of other chess publications, including worldchess.com and chess.com. He is the winner of several awards from the Chess Journalists of America, including Chess Journalist of the Year in 2013. I had the honor of nominating him for the Journalist of the Year, and I wrote at that time to the judges, Editors like writers that make our job easy. Bring us a good idea, execute it flawlessly, then bring us another good idea for the next issue. Jamal Abdul-Aleem has been executing good ideas for both Chess Life Online and Chess Life since he emerged on the national chess writing stage in 2010. And he did go on to win that Chess Journalist of the Year award. He began his career as a night shift crime reporter at the old Milwaukee Sentinel. He later covered children's court and then suburban education for the merged Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. When he wasn't freelancing, Jamal worked as a staff writer at a number of different publications, including Youth Today and Diverse, Issues in Higher Education. In 2017, he became education editor at The Conversation, a web-based platform for university scholars to share their knowledge and expertise with a wide audience. In that capacity, Jamal has tapped into his connections in the chess community and commissioned articles by people such as Alexi Root, a chess educator professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, and a contributor to Chess Life magazine, who I might also add is a friend of this and other U.S. chess podcasts. He's also tapped Daim Shabazz, a Florida A&M business professor and founder of the very successful website, The Chess Drum. When the weather is nice, you can occasionally find Jamal playing at the chess tables in DuPont Circle, the famed chess hub of Washington, D.C. Jamal, welcome to the One Move at a Time podcast. Thanks for having me. That's a pretty extensive uh, background. I'm, I'm especially curious about your uh, newspaper days. Do you do you miss the the smell of newsprint? Uh that's that's interesting because I actually used to smell it. My start I, I started out as a messenger, uh, which is basically kind of a, a gopher, you know, running things here and there. And one of the things I used to do is actually pick up newspapers from the um, from where they were printed. Um, so I actually recall the days, you know, when when. You know, before the internet, and that sounds funny to a lot of younger people sometimes, but um, this was, you know, a few years before the internet in the 1990s, and I remember it distinctly in uh, in my hometown in Milwaukee. Do you have any particularly interesting newspaper stories about, any, you know, breaking something or uh, being able to yell, stop the presses? Oh, man, if I tell those stories, I tell you, um, 
I don't know. I mean, the the crime stories. I, I, I'll put it like this. When you um, stand outside of yellow crime scene tape, you know, just night after night, uh, to say the least, it influences the way you look at the world. And um, I, I'll say this, that like crime shows on TV do nothing for me because I've been out there and lived a lot of that stuff. And I find myself critiquing crime shows is not being reflective of reality so that that's that's one thing that comes to mind <laughs> well the let, let's move to a, a i guess a, a more pleasant topic and that's uh chess and uh our mission statement you know our our one move at a time podcast is uh, the whole goal is to show people that are advancing our mission statement of empowering people enriching lives and enhancing communities through chess and you seem to have a natural attraction to those kinds of stories. The, the stories you pitch to the various editors at U.S. Chess often are a natural fit to this statement. Mm-hmm. What is it about these types of stories that appeals to you so much? So actually, that kind of brings to mind how it is that I got reintroduced to chess uh, as an adult. Uh, I first learned the game as a maybe 9 or 10-year-old child. My father introduced it to me, but I didn't get really reintroduced to it. Until I was, um, it was actually during my days as a reporter in Milwaukee when uh, I met um, a former uh, Air Force reconnaissance photographer who was using the game of chess to get young uh, boys, um, you know, in, in, in distressed and challenged neighborhoods to come to the library. And I was so impressed with the work that he was doing, uh, teaching chess, you know, at the library. He, you know, the only requirement for membership in this club was to have a library card and the idea was to get you know young young children you know reading and and um and interested in books and whatnot i was so impressed with what he was doing that i said to myself i wanted to do something similar and so when i got into chess it was with the notion that hey i want to use this as a way you know to foster uh educational uh, uh advancement and, and improvement and uh that's what i did so some of the jobs i took early in my reintroduction to the world of chess were like after school programs that were uh uh chess programs and um you know so it was it was writing about those types of things and that led me to want to actually do those things did you study education in school or what what led to you becoming an education writing specialist so interestingly just like a lot of uh, college students i changed majors three times so i started out with journalism then I switched my major to um, social welfare, and then I changed it to education, and then back to journalism. And it's interesting that those were the three things that I um, at one time majored in uh, because I ended up writing about those two things. In other words, you know, a lot of my journalism dealt with social welfare, and then uh, a lot of it dealt with, uh, with education as well. So I think that's part of part of what leads me to take an educational approach to uh, the writing that I do. And you mentioned a little bit about your chess history when you answered that first question. Um, wh- when did you come to rated chess and and join the federation? Yeah, so I think that was probably around 2010, and um, I recall the first big tournament that I went to was uh, uh, in Atlantic City, I believe. Uh, they were trying to reintroduce or start up the uh, Atlantic City Open. So that was kind of exciting because, you know, at Atlantic City, you know, I'd only heard about it or seen pictures of it 
Um, so for my first experience, you know, to be a chess tournament, you know, it was kind of interesting. Atlantic City has this kind of nostalgic feel to it. And um, so, yeah, that was that was my first uh, uh, big tournament. I had a smaller one before that, but that's like the first real tournament scene uh, that, that I recall. So you're joining the Federation and, and playing rated chess coincides hand in hand with you becoming a chess journalist. Yeah, it was a natural fit for me because, I mean, when you're a journalist, you're always looking for stories. And so, you know, once I got more heavily involved in the world of chess, I just continued to look at, you know, things through the lens of a journalist. And um, plus at the time I was a, a, a freelancer and so as a freelancer, you're always looking for, 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 for stories. And so I just apply, you know, my skills as a journalist in, in, in the world of chess. And here we are, uh, you know, a decade later, and I'm still at it. You've told me that your chess writing influences your education writing and editing. Talk a bit about this. Yeah, I mean, both influence one another. So because I cover education. Whenever I cover, uh, like if I write about a, a chess organization that works with young people, I'm always interested in what are they doing to help young people advance educationally? Because to me, it doesn't make much sense to use a game that is about making good decisions and then only apply that you know, to, to the game board with plastic pieces. If you don't apply the principles learned in that game, uh, to, to real life. And, I, you know, that's the thing that you hear over and over. But for me, it's like more about not just making, you know, good decisions and thinking ahead, but it's like, how do you apply that to acquiring more education? I, I guess, you know, as an education reporter, I hear all the statistics, right, about how uh, the more education you acquire, you know, the, the, the higher degree you attain, the better off you do. In life, and that's just that's not a philosophy or anything. That's just what the the statistics show. You know, the people who have more advanced degrees are better shielded against uh, unemployment and things of that nature. So, you know, knowing those things, it's like whenever I write about an organization, I'm always asking, well, what are you doing to help young people? You know, get into college. Um, you know, what is the educational uh, component uh, of what you're doing? And uh, I found that that. Um, I think that's kind of like my uh, niche, if, if you will, um, you know, uh, in terms of something that makes me distinct as a chess journalist is you can count on my coverage to have, you know, insight. And, you know, I even go so far as to get statistics from uh, many of the, uh, the federal and other um, databases that I'm aware of as an education reporter to kind of round out what I write about as a chess journalist. One area where that really comes home for me is you, you've written about the final four of college chess, uh, uh, more formally known as the President's Cup, uh, a number of times for Chess Life. Uh, this event's coming up next month in New York at the Marshall Chess Club. And your stories on this tournament haven't just been tournament reports. They've often had a focus on things such as internship opportunities available to to the students that are uh, these, I guess, do we call them student athletes when they're chess players or, or student chess players? Yeah, I guess, I, guess, I mean, if you, if you talk to a lot of chess, chess players, they'll say there's no question that they're athletes. Uh, you know, the, uh, and one of the things um, many players do to prepare for tournaments or really competitive play. There is a physical workout component. I, I don't think I've met many 
players that excel in this game that don't talk about the importance of physical fitness, um, you know, just to build stamina and, and endurance. So definitely athletes. Uh, in terms of the final four chess, so um, I guess with that, you know, I, I, I'm just impressed at, you know, the, the long-term sponsor. And um, um, I, I presume th this year as well has been this defense contractor, uh, Booz Allen. And um, so what, what I found intriguing was that they were offering internships. At first, it was just to the winners of the Final Four. But then later, they expanded that to anyone that made it to the Final Four. And to me, what's interesting is that, you know, you, here you have this major defense contractor, you know, this, this, uh, this, this firm that's, that's global in nature. And the reason that they like the top chess players, the top, top uh, college chess players so much is because of their analytical thinking, uh, their strategic thinking, their strategic approach towards things. The firm feels like, and this is directly from executives at the firm, is that, you know, so much of what, what you do, you know, on the chessboard applies to the things that they do, um, you know, with their clients uh, around the world. And the chess players themselves, the young, the young uh, college, uh, uh, the, the young players that make it really appreciate the fact that what they do, uh, the excellence that they, you know, use to, to make it to the Final Four actually pays off in a way that helps them advance uh, in their careers. And so to me, it just seems like um, I would be remiss as a reporter if I didn't bring that aspect of the Final Four um, uh, to, to, to the forefront. Because, yeah, great chess, of course, you know, people want to see that. And, of course, we rely on, you know, the chess players themselves to provide the analysis. So they got that covered. But I feel like it's just my duty to say, hey, Look at this this wonderful opportunity that uh, the young college players have uh, to get meaningful work experience that will help advance their careers. Do you happen to know how many uh, students have actually taken Booz Allen up on this opportunity? Yeah, I haven't looked at it numerically, but I, I just recall from my coverage, you know, there's, there's been players who've taken up, uh, advantage of opportunities um, at at um, Booz Allen's uh, offices around the world. You know, they got their hand in a lot of different things, as you can imagine, you know, a major defense contractor. And so, um, yeah, if, if, if you, you know, if someone were to revisit uh, my coverage, they would see, you know, um, the, the players that speak about um, uh, having that opportunity and, and, and what it means to them to be able to, you know, get, get meaningful work experience like that. You mentioned revisiting your work. I, I should point out to our listeners that all the PDFs go, uh, back to 2008 are available on our website at uschess.org. Um, so why don't we get into some of the specific stories that you've written for Chess Life's First Moves department. Uh, I know one of your favorites was about when you got the Gallup World Headquarters to host an annual Simo featuring Joshua Colas. Justice Williams and James Black for the after-school chess organization that you were working for at the time. Right, right. So the, the great thing about that, you know, it felt like a, a, a major victory uh, to be able to do that. But just by way of background, so Gallup is this, um, this polling firm. So a lot of the, the polls that you hear about are conducted by Gallup. You know, they kind of keep their, their, their finger on, you know, the, what the world is thinking. 
And um, so I used to cover a lot of events. I'm, I'm based in Washington, D.C., as you indicated earlier. This is where Gallup World Headquarters is. So a lot of the education events that I covered took place at Gallup World Headquarters. And the CEO, Jim Clifton, spoke about how the Great Hall, where they conduct a lot of these events, they actually you know, do trainings for like war generals and CEOs of companies and stuff like that. It's a really, really impressive room. You know, you got this big project projection screen at the front and um, it's like a cavernous place. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, this would be great for some type of uh, chess event. And at the time I was working for an organization called Chess Challenge in DC. And so with my colleagues at Chess Challenge in DC, I said, hey, we should try and do something at Gallup World Headquarters because to me, you know, venue is a very, very important element of chess. You know, you look at, you know, some of the, the, the great games, championships and whatnot, and just the venues themselves uh, have been interesting. Uh, you know, Kasparov, for instance, uh, what was it? The, um, some building in New York. I'm drawing a blank on it right now. But I know that they, um, you know, there, were, there, there, there have been some really, really interesting venues. And I think that when young people get exposure to some of these great venues, I think it can be very, very uh, uh, beneficial. And so um, the CEO of Gallup agreed. You know, he said, hey, uh, you know, when I, when I brought up the idea, I said, you know, I'd really like to do a chess event here. He said, you know, that, that would be great. And at the time, uh, there were three young men coming out of New York that were like rising in the chess world in lockstep fashion. And I'm referring to... Uh, uh, Justice Williams, uh, Joshua uh, Collis, and, and James Black, um, who all became national masters um, around the same time uh, together. And uh, so we thought that it would be great to have all three of them to do a simul for the after-school organization where I was working because, you know, we serve uh, young children in, uh, in D.C., and, you know, a lot of times, you know, they don't get to see uh, African-Americans, especially their age, who have excelled in the world of chess. So we thought it would be great exposure. And so all those things came together. And we not only did that, um, we not only did that one year, but we did that for like four or five years uh, straight. And uh, we were able to, to see uh, Joshua uh, James and Justice Rise. And one of the things I used to do, so remember I talked about that big projection screen at the front of the Great Hall at Gallup World Headquarters. What I would do is I would get the, um, the U.S. chess uh, statistics, uh, you know, where they have the top-ranked players for, for the month. And then there you would see their names, you know, number one, number three, number ten or whatever. And it was clear, it was able, it was a, a clear, vivid, vivid way to show the young people that, hey, these young men are the real deal. They're at the top of the chess world. You know, when you look at all chess players for their age in, in the U.S. Chess Federation, these young men are at top. So I thought it was just great to be able to, to show the, the proof like that and then to have them actually be able to play uh, with the three young masters in that in that wonderful venue, and they turned out to be a good choice. These three young men are still all very active tournament players on the U.S. chess tournament scene. Precisely, and then you know one of the things I always ask 
um, the three young masters was, hey, and it was funny because every year I would ask them, what are your plans for college? You know, and sometimes, you know, those plans weren't all that developed. But then one year, um, in fact, it was the last year that they came to D.C., um, they had all been uh, accepted to, uh, to to Webster on uh, on scholarships. And so uh, we kind of like, uh, I would almost say broke that news during one of the events because they had just found out. And so we announced it there. And um, so it was, it was just great to see them, you know, coming here when they were like, you know, 12, 13, and then sticking with it all the way up until, you know, their last year of high school and they got accepted to college. And uh, around that same time, you, you wrote another article for us for First Moves. Uh, I did a little bit of digging. I wanted to see the very first First Moves article you did for Chess Life. And the earliest I was able to find was from December 2011. It was about a new technology, getting pairings by text message. And we had such excitement about publishing this uh, new exciting technology. It almost seems quaint now, given that given how much of a role technology has in the chess world today. Mm-hmm. How you you're a very active in the American Swiss. Has have how have you seen technology change since then, and mm-hmm. what do you see and hear for the future? So it's interesting you bring up that article because actually the um, uh, the, the organizer of uh, chess events in Maryland, which you know of course is near. DC mentions that article in just about all of his promotional uh, chess materials for tournaments. I'm talking about Mike Mike Regan. Um, so he always, you know, when he touts the benefits of playing uh, in his tournaments, uh, he talks about you know getting the pairings uh, by text, and he says, "For more information, see this article." And um, to me, that's just one of the the highest compliments of uh, my journalism is, is, is not to just have it mentioned, but to have it mentioned in the context of, hey, here's some useful information that will give you, you know, more insight into one of the benefits that we that we offer, which is pairings uh, by text. Now, to me, um, one of the, uh, um, I guess I'd like to see more tournaments adopt that technology. It just seems like the logical right thing to do. And uh, I wish it was more prevalent uh, than it is. And, uh, all I can say is we've done our part. We've, 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 we've told the chess world that this exists and I think people appreciate it. And anyone who's, you know, uh, tried to see their pairings, um, you know, the, the old fashioned way where you post it knows that sometimes that can be, you know, there's a lot of jostling that goes on there and it's just a lot smoother when you can just get it by your cell phone. Yeah. I've always described it as a bit of a rugby scrum. Yeah. In the April 2013 issue, you wrote a sidebar just kind of showing a little bit about your versatility. Um, this wasn't quite a book review, but it was about the book Fighting Chess with Hikaru Nakamura. Mm-hmm. You opened that article with the somewhat provocative statement that one of the problems with American chess is that the strongest players spend too much time teaching weak players. Mm-hmm. I know you've developed a rapport with many grandmasters. Uh, you know, six years later, how true do you think this statement is? Yeah, I think that holds up. I mean, I've run that past uh, a few GMs, and um, they, I, I don't want to mention names, but they always say, yeah, they're, they're, one reaction was everybody knows that. And so when, when I heard, you know, a GM say that, that gave me the confidence to, to feel comfortable, you know, reflecting that. Plus, I mean, that was one of the things that was, you know, stated 
uh, in that book. And th- that's one of the things about chess is, you know, sometimes there's just a lot of different, really nuanced knowledge that you only pick up, you know, when you spend substantial time in the chess world and, uh, and, and talk to people. You know, and that can be knowledge, you know, of things that take place on the board, you know, that can sometimes be a bit counterintuitive. For instance, one of my favorite books uh, talks about how it's harder to hold on to a one a one position than it is to come back from a lost position. And that seems like I mean, it's like your reaction is how can that be? But, I mean, people who play, they know that. Sometimes you're ahead, and then you're just fighting to stay ahead, and sometimes you're behind, and you find that way to, it it just spurs you to do what you have to do. So I think it's one of those things because, you know, on the one hand, yeah, you want to have top-level players sharing their knowledge with with, with other players so that we can all improve. But uh, one of the things that I've heard, again, and I've heard it in more than one place, is that, when you do that, it can have kind of an adverse effect on your own game. And I think we all kind of know that um, from our own experience. I mean, if you think about what the, the type of mistakes that you might play when you're introducing the game to someone who's new to the game, and, you're, and you know they, they're not uh, on the level that you're on, so maybe you're a bit more careless um, or you don't put as much thought into your moves, and before you know it, you do something like really ridiculous. And um, so I think maybe some of that might be at play. Um, it's just, you know, you're dealing with players that you know their knowledge isn't is nowhere near where yours is, so maybe somehow it's contagious. You know, speaking of, you know, things being contagious, I've been in situations where I'm not in time trouble. My opponent is... And because my opponent is moving fast, I move fast. And I have no reason to do that. And, you know, other people have have remarked that they've been in similar situations. So one of the things about chess is how um, whatever is going on with your opponent, you know, it can just be contagious and it can can spread to you some type of way. And I guess the only way, I mean, you just have to to play to, to know if, uh, if there's any truth to that. And you understandably didn't want to give out any names a little bit earlier, but let me, let me ask a question that may force a name out of you. You've dealt with a lot of grandmasters. Who have you found to be the most approachable, uh, genuine, interesting, maybe, maybe even someone you've become friends with? So, so honestly, and you know, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating at all. Just about all the GMs that I've met have been really approachable really helpful, accessible. I mean, I have their email addresses. If I write to them and say, you know, hey, I'd like, you know, an analysis or, or what do you think about this? They always respond, you know, in a thoughtful way and in a way that provides the kind of insight that's needed to help me write a more informed article if that's what I'm contacting them for. And I think that's just, I, I don't think that's just with me. I think that would be that way with, with, with just about anyone. And I think that's one of the, the beautiful things about, you know, our chess community, if I can call it that, is that, look, when you go to chess tournaments throughout, you know, uh, the, the United States, you know, um, is that, I mean, what other sport do you have access to the top players the way we do? You know, I've, 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 uh, you know, they stop and they, 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 if younger players, you know, want to ask them something, 
you know, uh, I've seen them graciously answer. You know, they sign chessboards, um, things of that nature. I mean, because you're right there, you know, maybe looking at the pairings or the standings uh, uh, with them sometimes. And, um, you know, it, it does, it, even though they're on a different level, uh, I don't I don't see them really, you know, like act like they're on, on a different level. And I've really appreciated that about the world of chess. And I don't think, you know, there's many other sports like that where you can just walk up to, like, I mean, how many people have access to the top, uh, I don't know, you would know more than me, but the top tennis players in the world where you can just walk up to them and shake their hands and, 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 and interact or the top golf players. I mean, a lot of those sports are, people seem kind of like removed from the elite players. And I don't think we really have that. Um, maybe with the super elites, but, you know, in, in terms of the tournaments here, you know, you can interact with the gyms. And uh, I've just seen some fantastic things happen. Well, I, that's, that's a wonderful answer. And normally I would let it sit there. But because of your background as a crime reporter, I'm going to press you for a name. Give us one name. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, well, I, I could talk about an experience like with uh, GM Ray Robeson. Uh, I don't know if it's the best example because he was quite young at the time when um, when I first met him. But he was doing a simo in Virginia, you know, near uh, D.C. And um, I remember speaking with him and just saying, hey, what, what do you got going on? And he said, I'm headed to, to India to play. And I believe it was the World Youth at the time. This is 2011. And um, I said, "Hey, I'll, I'll see you there. I want I'll, I'll come out there and uh, and cover and, and cover it." And that ended up being like a really really interesting journey because, you know, um, I'd never been you know to that part of the world before, and then now here I was there, covering, um, you know, uh, Ray and, and and some of the others who were from the United States that were competing in in, in uh, uh, again, I think it was the world view. Um, and so, I mean, that's just one example. And I mean, and ever since then, you know, um, if I, you know, needed a comment from, from Ray, just some insight, you know, just email him and, um, and I would get it. Um, Robert Hess comes to mind. Um, you know, he does the, uh, the, the sports analysis and I found his insights to be, uh, uh, tr tr tremendously helpful. Um, I guess, you know, one of the reasons uh, I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant to mention names is because I might forget some. And if I forget or don't mention them, it's like, um, I mean, so many have been so gracious and so helpful. Um, I mean, we'd be here for a long time if I were to, to, to mention all of them. Yeah, no, and that's perfectly fair. And I, I, I was glad to hear you mention Ray because uh, I, I met Ray in 2013 and actually had an opportunity to play tennis with him in St. Louis. And he, you're right, he is a, a very, very good guy. And Robert Hess as well is is wonderful and one of our Chess Life columnists now. Mm -hmm. Talk a bit about more about the India trip. You had, you had told me that it was one of the best experiences of your life. What, what, what made it so? So I cover higher education and... Um one of the interesting things about India is they actually have affirmative action, um, which is, you know, a system that gives people from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, kind of a leg up when it comes to, to college access. The interesting thing was, so America has affirmative action, too. It's controversial, no doubt. Uh, but here in the United States, it's based on race. In India, it was based on caste. You know, they had the caste system, and I don't profess to know 
the nuances and, and ins and out of ins and outs of the caste system. But suffice it to say that at the time I was there, at least they had affirmative action, you know, that was meant to remedy some of the problems with um, people who were in some of the more disadvantaged uh, caste. And so one of the most interesting things was there was actually a controversial movie about affirmative action that came out in India when I was there. It was so controversial, it got banned. And then the Supreme Court had to intervene and say, no, you have to show it. And so I went to go see it. And lo and behold, even though I didn't understand it because it was in Hindi, the person sitting next to me had just got back from Chicago. I'm from the Midwest, Milwaukee, which is 90 miles north of Chicago. And so he was able to translate for me. And it was just... There were all kinds of experiences like that where things just came together that enabled me to write just some great stories about, you know, that provided insight into, into what was going on in India at the time. For instance, a follower of Gandhi was leading a hunger, a hunger strike in Delhi. And I ended up being there when that hunger strike and the protest that it sparked, you know, had reached um, a, a fever pitch. And I guess, you know, it's interesting to think that I wouldn't have seen any of that had it not been for that simple interaction with, with uh, Grandmaster Ray Robson and following him to India um, to, 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 to cover him playing chess, you know, I wouldn't have seen those other things. So, and so I think that's one of the beautiful things about, uh, again, our chess community is just the international uh, nature of it. I mean, how many players come from other parts of the world to play in the tournaments that we have? And just look at all the exposure you get to people from other parts of the world or, or when, uh, conversely, when, you know, uh, especially young students that you know here from the States go to another part of the world and you can, especially now, you know, with the internet, we can follow what they do online as they do it. I just think that's a tremendous uh, benefit uh, of being in the world of tournament chess. And um, I think that's something that, I mean, I just can't say enough about the value, uh, especially in a world that where things are becoming, you know, increasingly, you know, interconnected, you know, in terms of dealing with different countries. I just think that's a tremendous benefit to have. And hopefully, you know, we can create more opportunities for, uh, for young people to travel abroad, to see that things are done in different, different ways in different parts of the world and to meet, you know, some of the top chess players in other parts of the world and to compete uh, because when you compete against people, you learn something about them. Yeah, as, as we're talking uh, now, the World Team uh, Championship is, is currently being held, and Rochelle Wu is playing on our women's team and is, the, as far as we know, the youngest competitor ever at the World Team. So those opportunities are out there. Um, so we just have to publicize them more so that people are, are aware of them. If I could, one thing I would add on that is so one of the things I've learned from interviewing so, and again, I won't mention names because I don't want to exclude anyone, but every young person I've ever interviewed who's won a significant tournament, uh, there's always been um, a GM or an IM who was a coach that was somehow behind their success. And the reason I bring that up is because in order to get that type of uh, coaching, I mean, you're going to have to pay. Uh, that's just a reality. And so uh, there are, of course, you know, some children whose families don't have the money for that type of training. And so I guess one thing, 
you know, if, if I had um, a, a wish, if you will, uh, it would be that we find ways to get top-level instruction uh, to students who may not have the money to afford it on their own so that they have a shot at, you know, some of this international competition and all the benefits that go along with that. And that that type of work fits right in with our mission, vision, and goals at U.S. Chess. And listeners, if you're interested in, in helping with that, uh, please take some time and go to uschess.org and click on the donate button. Your tax-deductible donation will help us with programs like Jamal just mentioned. So let's move into some of the more current work that you're doing for us. Uh, right in the January 2019 issue of Chess Life, you wrote about the U.S. Chess Center and the influence on at-risk youth. For excuse me, at-risk youth. For readers who missed that, what what can they learn about in that article? Yeah. So that was um, the thing that stuck out um, for me was that was um, about a young man who attends a school here in Washington D.C that really isn't known for a lot of, you know, great academic things. In fact, this particular school ended up being part of one of the biggest education scandals in recent times. They had students that were graduating that weren't even attending school um, uh, for, for, for weeks. And so it was through chess and through the chess center that, you know, he got introduced to, uh, you know, tournament play and competitive play. And then also, you know, some of the chess instructors and and uh, and David Mahler, who runs the chess center, you know, were exposing him to, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, life beyond high school and and encouraging him to, um, you know, to pursue college. And he did that. And uh, he ended up getting uh, just a great uh, scholarship. And he credited, you know, his involvement with the world of, of chess and the chess center. Uh, with that, and he's since graduated and, and, and gotten a job. So that's like a concrete example, you know, a very a tangible example of how when you engage young people, you know, in this in this uh, uh, endeavor uh, of chess, of some of the, the the very positive and beneficial things that come out of it. I know you currently have a number of articles on your plate that are scheduled for upcoming issues of Chess Life. Let, let's tease the future a little bit. What what do you have coming up? Yeah, so, you know, as I have in uh, years past, uh, I plan to uh, to go to the, uh, the World Open. And, um, you know, I've, I've always found that to be, you know, just a, a, a great experience. You know, there's always something different that takes place. Uh, uh, at the top level, and uh, one, one particular year, there was uh, a, a young lady. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on her name. Seventeen years old, and um, she just, you know, captivated people's attention because, you know, there had never been a situation where uh, a, a, a woman, much less a, a young a young woman, you know, seventeen, was was in a position to win first place in the World Open. And, um, and and here she was, and that that um, coverage actually ended up, I think, winning an award from the Chess Journalist uh, uh, of America. And so I always look for, I mean, you never know, I never know what I'm going to write when I cover the World Open. It all depends on what happens. But, you know, as if, if the past is any indication, I'm sure there'd be, you know, just a, a great, interesting uh, development that takes place at the, the 2019 World Open. I'll also say this, is that the more I cover 
uh, tournament chess. And I know this is one of the less pleasant aspects of, of what we do, but the reality is sometimes there's, there's cheating. I've become more adept at, you know, kind of spotting that stuff and asking me like questions about that. And uh, the only reason I bring that up is just, I mean, one, one, I believe there's an education in that in terms of like saying, Hey, people are watching. So if you come to our tournaments and you got, you know, ill designs and trying to cheat in some way, don't try it. Some way it's going to come out. And, um, I'm always looking for a good story and you don't want to be in my stories for the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a crime reporter, so I guess that's how my crime reporter kind crime, crime reporting kind of spills into my chess journalism. If you're, if you're there, I mean, cause think about it. I mean, these tournaments, you know, like the world open, it's like a quarter million dollars, you know, total at stake. And so sometimes that draw, draws out some of the less savory aspects of, of humanity. But, you know, fortunately, there's some um, vigilant people from parents to players to journalists like me that are keeping an eye on things. And if you do something, you know, that is um, makes you not worthy of a prize, we're going to point it out. Utilizes all your talents because you, 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 you see the crime and then you educate them on why that's not a good idea. Right. 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 So, yeah, it all, it all comes together. I think another story you're working on in, in, involves uh, Sunil uh, Wiramantri. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're coming up on the 40-year anniversary of a program that he does at Hunter College. And so, again, just the uh, venue itself, I know that, you know, I haven't begun to look into it yet. But I just know based on the venue and based on Sunil's work, I know there's going to be a wonderful education angle or component uh, to that story. And so I greatly look forward to working on that. Now, uh, hopefully we have some young talent listening to us that may be interested in trying to break into the chess journalist game. What, what advice might you have for them? So actually, I'm going to point to, um, uh, I'm sorry, I always have to, to think about the names. Uh, I'm going to say Quest to Jim, um, and his name will come to me. Um, so, but there's actually a lot of young uh, chess, chess journalists now um, that if you look at their blogs or just some of their social media posts, um, that I think would give you some, some great uh, ideas on, on, on what to do. You know, I don't want to just, uh, uh, I shot Chandra is his name. And so, um, you know, he, I think one of the, especially for young, young folks, you know, uh, what he did was he established this, it was a blog under the theme Quest to GM. And uh, he's not the only one uh, uh, who's done this. You know, there's, there's been quite a few uh, excellent young chess players who will blog about some goal that they have, you know, a lot of times just becoming a GM. And there's something, I don't want to say magical, but for lack of a better term, I'll say magical. I think there's something magical that happens when you start writing about um, your quest uh, or the goals that you're trying to reach, um, I think it helps move you to that goal faster and in a more uh, interesting way. I guess what happens is, hey, you know you have readers now. You know you have people reading your material and they want to see your development. And that probably has uh, a motivating influence uh, or effect on, on what you do. And um, so I think just chronicling your experience you know, as you try to become better at chess, um, it's something that would be beneficial for, for those who read the material, but then also 
uh, for, for yourself as well. In terms of advice, I guess one thing I would say is, so, you know, as a you know professional journalist, a lot of times, and I think this is what makes my, my, my work uh, distinct, is that um, I get out of the way of the story. In other words, um, very rarely, at least I think, I haven't done a formal audit, but if you look at my material, very rarely will I start out with myself. I like to tell the stories of others and, um, and you know, based on interviews and the things uh, that they say. So I guess my main advice would be, you know, get out of the way of the story and tell the story of others and just watch how easy it is to tell the story and kind of, you know, the story just unfolds in a natural way. And it'll kind of, what we say in the profession is, it'll write itself. Um, if, you know, I don't, I don't want to call any names or anything, but I'm, one of the things I've been critical of is, you know, people who kind of start out with the I um, and, you know, just a lot of things that I think maybe are the most, the most interesting. Uh, focus on others and, and, and tell their story. And I think it'll do wonders for, uh, for the journalism that we produce. And people often make a mistake thinking that you have to be a highly rated player to be a chess journalist. But you and I are proof that that's not the case. Uh, yeah, I definitely proved it. I think I'm going down lately. So. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Jamal yeah. and I are both uh, Class C level players who have managed to make a career out of this. So it, it, it's what we can't do is we can't annotate games, but there's ways around that. Like Jamal hires grandmasters to do the analysis for the World Open articles, for example. Um, but what you can do, there's stories that can be told, human interest stories and things of that nature that um, don't require you to be highly rated. Yeah, I, I would say um, the one thing, I mean, there's one question you can always ask that's going to work if you're a chess journalist. And that is just ask, uh, like if you're interviewing the GM or whoever it is, it doesn't even have to be a GM, but it could be, you know, whoever won the tournament. Just ask, what was the most critical move? Um, and, and the most decisive game in this tournament. And I guarantee you, most of the time, that's going to produce the answer that will be probably the foundation for your story. Well, Jamal, this has been a lot of fun. I, you've done so much work for us that there's a, I've got a list here of stories that I wanted to talk about that we, we don't even have time to get into. Um, listeners, you know, dig into our archives. Jamal's written about alternative sentencing in Canada, a program that uses chess for that. He's written about figure skatey, skater Katie Ledecky and her background in chess. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, uh, w when he was in Life of a King. So lots of stories here. Uh, we could probably almost do a, a second podcast with Jamal. Um, so Jamal, again, thank you very much for joining us at One Move at a Time. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to One Move at a Time. Our theme music was composed by Alex King, a national master who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. For a chance to win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com, send your name and phone number to podcast at uschess.org and put One Move at a Time in the subject line. This month's winner is Brian Mullis of Maryland. Congratulations, Brian, and your gift certificate is waiting for you in your email inbox. I hope that you have learned something new about how to build chess within your community. Join us next month for another Chess World personality and more good ideas. Make sure to listen to our other U.S. Chess podcasts, 
which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and coming at the end of this month, on the fourth Tuesday, our brand new podcast, Chess Underground, hosted by Assistant Director of Events, Pete Karianis. Thank you and good chess.